Good morning. Uh, if you can find your way back to your seat, that'd be fantastic. Uh, thrilled to be with you all. Uh, my name is Wally. Uh, I am the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor, so Happy New Year, if I have not got to say as much to you. Um, thrilled that you can be with us, that we can gather, have this time. It is a new year. Uh, I just got a text uh, from Sarah McCannelly, uh, who is on staff with us as our musical worship leader. Uh, Lisa, uh, who is also on staff, was leading this morning. So she just, uh, Lisa has obviously all of these different gifts and talents, and was leading us this morning. It was really lovely. Sarah this morning is leading worship for her grandmother's church on the other side of the state. So that was like her grandma's, hey, you know what, you can get me for Christmas. Would you come and lead worship at my church? Isn't that fantastic? It, and so the picture that she just sent was her and her dad and her grandma. And she said, um, uh, greetings from Presbyterian Church of Alma or something like that. Um, so uh, she's going she's gonna to breathe a little um, spirit into them through songs. So I love it. I, it's just such a gift. That's such a beautiful thing. And we, of course, just miss her um, when she can't be with us, uh, as is true of our, our staff. So um, pretty cool. Uh, so uh, we are jumping in. Uh, we... This morning, are beginning a 39-week journey through the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis in the Bible, we're going to start and we're going to do 39 weeks uh, to go through this, and I'm really excited for that. I love that. I love, I love immersing ourselves in uh, just going through a book of the Bible, we can go ahead and for all I care, we could just keep right on going. Next would be Exodus. And let's just keep right on rolling and then eventually we'll find ourselves in Revelation and that would be a joy. Um, I, I would love that. Uh, somebody dropped their barrette or hair thing. It was not me. <laughs> it did not fall out of my hair. Um, uh, but I just slipped on it. Anyways, um, so you know, this uh, book, uh, a couple of pastors for Harbor Churches, a couple pastors put together an every single day to go uh, kind of help, uh, be an aid, be a resource going through the book of Genesis. So this is a book of just kind of a daily, read this, reflect on this, here are some things. So if you want one of these, they're over at Connecting Point. Uh, we have a few, and we can, we can get some more if you so want to do that. It's an everyday thing um, that you go through, and if you do not, like if you miss a day, you get shocked. <laughs> it's really quite something. No, just that's a pathetic joke. Um, but there are these books. Uh, we'll, we'll have them over there if you do want one. Uh, around the table, family. One for your family, if you wanted to do so as in a group, a study group together, it's that kind of thing that could uh, help aid in that, and that's really a beautiful thing. So 
that would be lovely. Um, but as it is going through the book of Genesis, it's going to be lots of fun. We have a lot to dig into. It's such a joy to study, immerse ourselves in this. Uh, I'm thrilled. I'm looking very much forward to it. Uh, but I understand that I'm not normal. Maybe for other people, they say, what? Going through the book of Genesis for 39 weeks, that seems a bit much. And, and it can, and yet you'll see as we got rolling, and for those of you who have been with us, we went through Matthew, and that actually took us a, about a year and a half, close to a year and a half to get through the book of Matthew. And I don't think, hopefully, no one got bored, and we don't ever go, oh, you know, we're still in it. It's not the case, because as is when we sink into the scriptures, it, it, it is bigger. It's wider, and it's never just one thing. It's the whole thing. And so we want to immerse ourselves into that. So I don't, I don't think that'll be a problem. Um, if anything, um, it's just a pure gift and joy. So that will be this. Um, in sinking in, I want to pray, and then we'll get into it, because we're going to talk about some Genesis today. Next week, uh, I'm going to dig deep into the context and we're going to go, what's the context of Genesis? That is a really big deal, and that will take us uh, kind of into the deep uh, weeds, which is beautiful and helpful, and that'll be good. And then the week after that is going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait for that week. And then the week after that is going to be really good, but then there's the week after that that we're going to practice what we've been in. We're going to step back and reflect on what we've been studying, and then we're going to go, and how does this walk out even more practically in our lives? What disciplines, what practices does this bring up in our daily lives? So we're going to have some time. So I'm looking forward to the next 39 weeks, uh, but the next few are going to be a good time. Uh, so it'll be great. Uh, if you join me in prayer, then we'll, uh, then we'll open up the scriptures and go. Uh, gracious God, you are good. I bless you, God, for breathing life into us once again. We have this day, and this day is a gift. We have this opportunity and this invitation to gather as your body, the church. That is a gift. Uh, we bless you, God, for uh, being able to gather, to learn, to grow, to uh, understand more and more what it means to be uh, your people, to uh, serve and give and pour out for one another and for the wider community. It is all such a gift and such uh, a beautiful thing, and we, we bless you for that, God. Uh, as we now take this time to meditate and study uh, the scriptures, God, may the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone, our Lord, our rock, and our Savior. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the Christ. And the church said, Amen. Amen. We are going to head towards the table. This morning, so we are going to head towards a time uh, known as the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, and so the, the scripture is going to invite us into that, so we'll head in that direction, um, but we'll get there in um, about an hour and 45 minutes, so um, if you can hang in there, or we've got a lot to do. That is my uh, obli obligatory, uh, long-winded pastor joke. There you go. We got it in. It's fantastic. Now...
if I were to ask you about a moment in your life, uh, an experience in your life that was a life-changing moment, was there something, an experience you had, a moment in which things shifted for you in your life, things dramatically changed, and I would say, could you tell me about this, this moment, this life-shaping experience that you had? My guess is you would not begin with that moment, correct? You would back up and you would say, well, to get you to that moment, for us to understand that moment, you would probably back up and start the story where? In the beginning, probably in the beginning. So why Genesis? Because even though there is a central big moment for the people known as Israel, to tell that story, you have to back up and you have to say, well, how we got to this big moment is let's go to the beginning. This is kind of how the Bible functions. So the book of Genesis is actually known as the prelude to the big moment for the ancient Hebrew people. Genesis is a book, is one book of a five-volume series. There are five books. This is book one of that series. The ancient name for the five-part series is called Torah. Go ahead and say Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word. It means instruction, teaching, and we translate it as law, which is within that kind of way, within the word, you can get law, but it's actually not the most helpful word. Instruction is. And so um, the ancient name is Torah or Pentateuch. If you've heard that, that's the Greek name, which means five scrolls, the five scrolls, Pentateuch. And it contains what we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is Torah, that is Pentateuch, that is what this is. And Genesis is the first book in that series, if you will. So maybe for us, maybe what is helpful, is anyone a Lord of the Rings fan? Some people, good, good, good. So think of Genesis as the fellowship of the ring. Okay, uh, how about Star Wars? Sean, you can keep your hand up. On all of these, you just keep them up. The, then the Phantom Menace, we know, is the, is the beginning, whether or not you like Jar Jar Binks or not. Um, that's the beginning. Oh, Harry Potter. The philo more Harry Potter, yeah. The Philosopher's Stone, we know, is number one. Or Hunger Games. Hunger Games is... Volume one. Now, here's the thing. In all of those, the first book isn't the point. It's laying the foundation for everything that is about to happen. It's heading somewhere. It's beginning the story. Welcome to Genesis. You see what we just did there? We just united all of us nerds. Yeah, this is a good time. Nerds unite. That's what I think. So it's important for us to, to, to see this, catch this, pick up on this. Um, but one, when we have Torah, and when we have uh, it translated as law, we today in the United States, certainly our age, we tend to have a dysfunctional relationship with law. 
And sadly, what we do then is we project that dysfunction onto these books called Torah. When we hear things like in the Bible like, oh, law, how often maybe the Bible has been used in a dysfunctional way, has been used where people go, oh, when they hear it, they think it, they're like, no way, keep that thing away from me. Uh, the way I said it is, have you... Have you ever had conversations in which someone or interactions where somebody has postulated the Bible as like a wet blanket for the teenager? Like the teenager's like, I want freedom, and then the Bible is just, yeah, it's the downer. Oh, it ruins everything that people think that the Bible is a party pooper. I would argue that a good bit of that dysfunction has because of the way in which the church has presented or taught the scriptures. I would say that is often to do that. And so my hope is that we will humbly do the work of telling the story of God as genuinely good news, and that is what it is. And we're doing that now, telling that story of God as good news to a biblically illiterate society. And that's just the way it is. There are a lot of people that have opinions about the Bible, but most of those are now coming from people who have not really read the Bible. They've heard the Bible thrown at them, spoken to them, if you will, pushing them down, whatever it may be. But how many people have actually sunk into and read the Bible? Starting in Genesis, and then by the time you get to Leviticus, people are hitting the eject button. And I totally get that. Unless we have some context, unless we do it in community, I would argue, so that we can kind of wade through the murkiness and some of the difficulty together because it is a very, very fascinating and muddy and weird and odd and difficult library of books, the Bible. So, the climactic moment, the big central moment for the Hebrew people takes place when a specific God named Yahweh meets with Israel, these people, on Mount Sinai. That is the central point. Here, this God gives them instructions, Torah, for how to be God's people in and for the world. This all takes place after they've been rescued from Egypt, where in which they were enslaved. This is the movement, and then this is the moment. Did you know that a little over half of the Torah takes place, it has the people situated around Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai. Over half of the Torah has them located at Sinai for this moment. So everything in the Torah that comes before this moment is what led up to it, and everything after that moment within the Torah is essentially reflecting back on this moment. It's, so it's a big deal. The story of Israel finds its climax at Sinai, and it's here that they find out who they are as children of God, the people of God, and how to maintain and grow a relationship with the divine in the land that they will be given, which was promised to them. This is important for us to know if we are going to read Genesis responsibly. If we're going to read that responsibly, then we should know this is where it's heading, this is the big moment. 
if we're going to read Genesis in context as the ancient Israelites would have heard it and experienced it, we have to read it as a story that propels us to the dramatic events of Mount Sinai. And so then a heads up, as you're at Mount Sinai and you see all these themes or these things taking place, if you look at them and if you were to write them down, you would see a lot of those themes showing up in the book of Genesis. The Torah is the ancient Israelite people saying, we have a story to tell of how we were rescued from oppression, given land, and instructed on how to love and witness to the one who is the creator and sustainer of life. And here's the thing, Genesis is how we got here. So, a lot of Jewish people, even through today, the way they would understand Genesis is they go, if you were to ask them, what's the first book of the Bible, if you will, they would say, well, Exodus. And then they would go, Genesis is the prelude. Exodus is our story that we tell. And then if someone says, yeah, and how did you get there? They would go, great, Genesis. That's more a good way of looking at that. So rather, this massive story has a very specific context, and we're going to dig into that next week, and it's going to be all so much fun. But uh, this alone, just this, unpacking this is good enough reason for us to spend 39 weeks plus in the book of Genesis, but there is even better reason for us. When we find the resurrected Jesus in a position to tell his story, he doesn't begin with his birth narrative. In fact, although we place a very massive value on the birth narrative, Jesus never references his birth once. When he is invited to tell his story, if you will, he begins in the beginning. He goes much farther back because he's telling a much bigger story. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start with Jesus telling this story. So to begin our study of the book of Genesis, we are going to open our Bibles to the gospel according to Luke. <laughs> that's good times right there. That's fun. Um, so that's where we're going to go because we're going to see Jesus be invited in to tell the story and see how we got there. So it's a lot of fun, but we got to trick you all into saying something and then I got to laugh. So uh, scholar, New Testament scholar, uh, and uh, who I pretend to be a friend of ours, N.T. Wright, says if, we, if what we know as the prodigal son story, if that is like Jesus' finest storytelling, then he says this story must be equally held as Luke, Luke's uh, uh, best sketching, best storytelling in this story that we're going to get into. Contextually, where we find ourselves is it's after the crucifixion, and it's mere hours after the resurrection. We find Jesus meeting up with a couple of his students, and they're, on, uh, they're leaving Jerusalem, and they're heading to a village called Emmaus. And so they're on their way there, and the story is found in Luke chapter 24. So that's where we're going to begin. So uh, 24 verse 13, now on that same day, on resurrection day, that's what it is. On that same day that Jesus was resurrected, two of them, two of his students, we're going to a village called Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things, which is a lot, that had happened. So first, let's go ahead and jump out on a map so we can get ourselves situated. You have the Dead Sea. We're in Israel. You have the Salt Sea, Dead Sea, River Jordan that would head up to the Galilee region. You have the Judean wilderness, desert kind of area. You have Jerusalem, capital. And then seven miles from Jerusalem, you have this little village called Emmaus. They are on their way walking there. These students of Jesus, we have to think of it as had quite a week. Think about like a a week that they have had, uh, and then an even bigger weekend. They likely watched Jesus ride into Jerusalem, blanketed, singing with the expectation of revolution. He was coming into Jerusalem. We uh, look at this. He comes riding in on a, on a donkey. They see this, and they, they're singing. There's chanting. There is all of this revolution is going to happen as he coming in as king. Then that week, then what we have is a number of confrontations Jesus has with both the religious leaders of his religion, if you will, that kind of religious leaders he bumps into, and he has all of these confrontations with Rome, Roman's leadership, and that all surrounds who he is claiming to be. They were having these uh, confrontations, arguments. Then he is arrested. He's put on trial. He's falsely accused, convicted of treason. He is sentenced to die on a Roman execution stake called a cross. But then a few days later, the tomb where they laid his dead body is found empty. All of that in a week. And then the weekend. That's one for the books. So then Luke 24, 15 to 18. While they were walking, while they were talking and discussing, and I like this, N.T. Wright translate this as arguing, that part of talking and arguing, and that's going to make sense in just a minute. It's pretty fun. Um, arguing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, uh, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Now, although we are only given one name, Cleopas, of the two students that he's walking with on the road here, most scholars, including our friend N.T. Wright, note that in John's gospel, at the crucifixion scene, it says that standing alongside of Jesus' mother is a lady named Mary, who is the, the wife of Clopas, which most scholars understand, oh, that's who this is, then, so that... That's why N.T. Wright says they're arguing because he understands that it's a husband and wife walking along, talking about the events that just happened. That's fantastic. Um, I think that's funny. But so likely that it's this Cleopas and his wife Mary are the ones who were at then the crucifixion scene standing with his mother Mary. So just that's one of those things that keeps scholars busy for a while. Is this them? Is it not? Well, no, no, no. That's all the time we're giving it. Now, this moment, though, between Jesus and his two students, uh, it jostles a memory for me where they're like, dude, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? 
All of the news outlets have this on the front page, and you're asking us what we're talking about? Are you serious? That to me, it, it brings up this memory 22 years ago. I was working part-time in youth ministry, and I had another job with PacMail. We ship anything anywhere. This is Wally, how may I help you? And so I was working uh, this job, PacMail, and um, I was in the store by myself when a woman burst through the door. She stood there at the door and she was weeping. And she kind of stood frozen for an uncomfortable amount of time, just crying, standing in the doorway. And finally I said, excuse me, is there something I can help you with? Are you okay? And then she, uh, she looked at me and she then blurted out, do you not know what just happened? And at that moment, my heart skipped a beat because I knew just looking at there, something huge is going on and I have no idea what's happening. Because you have to remember, at this time, no smartphones. I'm in this store by myself. I have no idea what's going on. I'm standing behind the counter sorting mail and packages. And, she, and so I said, I don't know. And then she looked at me with both kind of amazement and she was uh, uh, also a little bit of disgust. Like, are you serious? And then she said, how can you not know what happened? She said, one of the trade towers in New York was just struck by a plane and collapsed. And I was like, whoa. And I knew, like, this is one of those moments. And she's like, you don't know. And I had this feeling of, like, am I the only one in the world that doesn't know? And then I remember going in the back and turning on the radio just in time to catch the second plane was hitting. I was listening to this thing, and this lady was there listening with me. She's crying, and I'm like, whoa. But it was this moment similar to this where like, are you the only one that doesn't get what's going on here? This is a life-changing thing that's just taken place and you don't know. That's what this story takes me into that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, verse 19, he asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to set Israel free. Really key. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Pause. Jesus asked, what things are they talking about? Their response is really quite revealing in this story. They had hoped that Jesus would set Israel free, which is very clear Exodus language. That's Exodus language. What they're saying is we thought Jesus was leading the new Exodus that would free our people. They're referencing the central story of their people thinking now this is going to happen again, but in a bigger, larger scale. That's what we thought was going to happen. But it didn't happen as they thought it would, so they're walking along in despair. From all we just studied in the book of Matthew, if you were with us going through that, what were they believing for Jesus to do to set Israel free? Be a big, powerful king with a big, powerful military that's how this thing is going to go. And so they thought, we thought he was going to be the king, 
but they killed him, so that must not be what happened then. We think the story is over. Why? Because they're stuck in a small story of what winning looks like. Winning looks like a big, powerful king with a big, powerful sword with a big, powerful military behind him. That's what winning is like through dictator-like power and military might. It's really sad what people of old believed. The story, I would say, that they are telling is that Jesus did not fulfill their beliefs. You see what happened there? Jesus didn't do what we thought should, could, would be done. So it's a failure. If we're honest, this is quite similar to our world today. Get this, the divine is merely a character in our story rather than us playing a role in the divine's story. Are you with me? Okay. Now, verse 22 Moreover, some women of our group, again, this is always around their story, their story, astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had, not, they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Don't miss this. Then beginning what? With Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Oh, you want me to tell you the story, my story? Then we have to back all the way up and go to the beginning. Jesus doesn't tell a parable here. He doesn't speak in confusing ways. He clearly tells them, you have missed the big picture. You're stuck in a small story and you've missed what is taking place. By only asking what is, it, what is in it for their group, they have missed what Jesus was doing for all people. Does that sound relevant? By only asking what is in it for their group, they have missed what Jesus was doing for all people. <laughs> they were looking for a king who would rescue them by crushing their pagan enemies, and would free them from their suffering. Don't miss this. Instead, Jesus takes on the identity of Israel and redeems and frees them through suffering. How many of us say, oh, man, I just, we don't want pain, we don't want suffering, so God, get me out of this. And how many times, essentially, is God saying, no, no, I'll be with you through what you're in? That's how you'll be awakened to who I am. By not just getting you out of everything that you don't like, but rather taking you through it. Again, this is encouraging us to wake up from our small stories and our small-mindedness. People often tell a story one of two ways. One in which has them at the beginning of the story with the divine fitting in somewhere. 
and another is with the divine at the beginning, and each person plays a part of something much bigger. Are you with me? Good. This is why my favorite story in the scripture is Jacob. And, and found in the book of Genesis, we're going to immerse ourselves some time in, in his story, which is great. But I love that it. it's my favorite story because it's Jacob waking up to the divine. He goes and wanders after really just messing up his entire family relationship, and it's a, just a nightmare. And then he goes and he falls asleep uh, as he's fleeing for his life, and he has a dream. He wakes up from that dream, and it's my favorite line. He wakes up and he says, God has been here the entire time. I was not aware of it. Oh, God has been here, been with me the entire time. I'm the one that has missed it. I was stuck in a small story, and I was not alert, awakened to that. That's what's going on here. He was the one not paying attention. I'd imagine there's all sorts of ways for Jesus in this moment to kind of rattle these students into getting it. But he chooses to begin in the beginning to unpack for them how the entire story from Genesis through Chronicles has been pointing to him. There is no New Testament, as we would call it, at this point. Jesus is saying the entire Hebrew scriptures have been pointing to him. Jesus began with Moses and the prophets, and so that's the beginning. So maybe some of you are going, yeah, I know, but he just said Moses and the prophets. How is that the beginning? Isn't Moses a story found in the book of Exodus? Yes, but Moses for the Hebrew people is shorthand for Torah. And what's the first book of Torah? Genesis. So when it says Moses and the prophets, it means Torah and the prophets that wrote after that. So when he says he began with Moses and the prophets, he began with Genesis and walked through the rest of what we call the Hebrew scriptures um, and into the writings, which includes the prophets and such. Jesus embodied the original purpose of being people of the divine. That's what he's doing, is I'm embodying that, and I'm going to show you what that looks like. This is reclaiming our understanding for the entire story, beginning with the Hebrew scriptures. This is needed now more than ever. This need for us to recapture the whole story, which means recapturing the beginning and the heart of the Hebrew prophets. I love this. In fact, uh, Father Richard Rohr, uh, Franciscan priest, he gave a sermon in 1980. Does anyone remember the 1900s? Right? In 1980, all the way back then, he gave a sermon, and this is an excerpt from his sermon about this. I love this. He says, in many ways, I think part of the explanation for perhaps the powerlessness of much of modern Christianity has been that it has lost touch with the Hebrew Scriptures. In particular, we have lost touch with the prophets. When we lose the sense of the prophets and their vision, we enter into a very overly spiritualized interpretation of Christianity. The prophets kept the word of God earthy. Oh, they kept it uh, whole. They kept it real. They would not let us divide earth from heaven. They put heaven and earth together as 
And they said, it's all one. It's so good. 1980. That's some preaching right there. That is, that's some needed truth today said then. Jesus begins in the beginning and sows himself to the earthy boldness of the prophets. This is a big deal because once again, as happens, I would say almost weekly, I had just someone recently say to me, oh, oh, I don't really read the Old Testament. It's weird. And in light of Jesus, it's irrelevant. And I couldn't keep my mouth shut this time. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. In light of the Hebrew prophets, we have Jesus. If you want to study Jesus, Jesus makes way more sense if you read the Hebrew scriptures. And oh, by the way, what we call the New Testament makes, makes way more sense if we study the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures actually make way more sense if you read the New Testament, which says what? Let's keep it all together, please. Let's not ignore one. Let's not shove it. Which, by the way, this is a good time for a timeout and say, why do I um, say Hebrew Scriptures and not Old Testament, New Testament? Most of the scholars that I study, they often will point this out. The Hebrew scriptures, then we are getting rid of this language of old and new, which just does us a disservice. Well, that's old. This is new. Let's go new. And it's really the Hebrew scriptures and I would say the second testament. If people wanted to say the first testament and the second testament, great. That's how I would refer to them. It's far, it's just more helpful because we need it all. So when you say Hebrew scriptures, because one, that is the Hebrew Bible, for Jewish people, is, is just that. So there are things, there's, there's a respect there, there's an honor, and it's just practically helpful, especially when people do this, which a lot of people do. Oh, it's old, I don't, it's irrelevant, not interested. Jesus begins in the beginning, simply following the tradition and rhythm of many of the writers of the scriptures. Again, how many times have heard people skip over, ready, the boring genealogies? You come to these, right? And you're like, good heavens, I can't pronounce any of these names. It's a bunch of names. We'll just skip it. But what are those doing? They're knitting this story, whatever story they're telling, they're knitting it to what? The beginning. So they say, if we're going to tell a story of our kings, by the way, the, the book, it's two books that we do, but it's one book, Chronicles. The first nine chapters of Chronicles is genealogy. They say, let's tell the genealogy that, le- that all of our kings, and, they, and, and what's the chapter one, the very first genealogy, how Chronicles, first Chronicles begins with Adam. What they say is everything we're going to say, all of these people, all of our family connections, all of our kings, all of this, it has its beginning in the beginning. It's not irrelevant. It's actually really helpful. It's good. So the chronicler begins in the beginning. Matthew begins with what? A genealogy. It's not boring. It's incredible. It's powerful. And maybe we just need to highlight that and point that out. So with that, rant, back to our story, shall we? 
Verse 28, as they came near the village to which they were going, Emmaus, he walked ahead, Jesus, as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, one of the most beautiful lines, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us, and their hearts were on fire. That same hour, they got up, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, the 11 disciples, apostles, uh, students of Jesus, and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon, that is Peter. Then, he, then they told what had happened on the road, what they just experienced, and how he had been made known to them. How, where, and what? Around the table sharing a meal, their eyes are opened and their hearts are on fire. That is such an electric story. In sharing time at the table and opening the scriptures, these two students had their hearts engulfed in flames. That which was deepest within them was sparked and a fire erupted from their hearts. Everything for them changed. They saw, they experienced, they were awakened to the big story, the big picture. Now it's as if the writer of John's gospel, the writer John, John picks up on this and he chooses to begin his gospel account with a cosmic birth narrative. John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did, over, did not overtake it. Oh, by the way, by the way, back up, I got a gift a couple weeks ago. It's the Torah. Really stunning gift. Uh, it is the Torah, so it's what we know as the five books of Moses. And what it is, is um, Torah on one part of the page is in English and on the other side of the page is Hebrew. So it's the Torah in, in English and in Hebrew side by side. And it's a big old hefty, beautiful gift. And that's stunning. Anyways sitting here and I'm like, oh yeah, by the way, I should probably, there it is. Now, um, back to our story. In the beginning, John is not writing, ready? He's not writing about the birth of Jesus. He is writing about the existence of the Christ who has given birth to all that has come into existence. Think about that for the next life. <laughs> 
And what John is writing begs us to read what? The opening verses of the biblical library found in the book of Genesis. Genesis, now here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Each of these ancient stories are deeply personal stories. They don't have an absent or distant God. Notice that. They place the divine as the central character in the story who is involved and who is bringing peace out of or over chaos. These are not just ancient stories, and here's the point, they are our stories. They're our story. They are stories of waking up to the God who has been here the entire time. I just was distracted. I wasn't awakened yet. I didn't get it. I was lost in my own small story. I missed it, but now all of a sudden, boom, my heart's engulfed in flames and I get it. I understand. The challenge for us is can we zoom out beyond ourselves and see the bigger story? The way the ancient Hebrew people told the story is like this. In summary, the divine rescued us from slavery in Egypt and delivered us into a land of our own. Our role was to walk with the divine, to be a living witness to the, the God who is good and who acts in love. Oh, how did we find ourselves enslaved in Egypt? Well, in the beginning, that's how they told the story. Where we begin the story matters. Where you begin the story matters. We live in a culture that's drowning in hyper-individualism, where the individual is the center. It's a rather small story, what is needed is a callback to the bigger story, to the story that helps us make sense of our story. And I love how Jesus inserts a practice in the midst of speaking to these two students. He invites them to see the more while they share a meal. The Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, this gives us a practice to also remember the bigger story. But here's the thing. In Luke and John's Gospels, we have people in their story who do not recognize Jesus after the resurrection. In the story, we're not told why. We don't understand why they don't recognize him. All it says is there are some people that interact with Jesus after the resurrection and they don't recognize him. But what we are told in the story is, because, is that they are stuck in small stories. They're not seeing him, but they're stuck in a small story. And both times in those interactions, Jesus is like, hello, hello. And then there's a, ah. Oh. They're lost in a small worldview of how rescue and redemption take place. So this practice of gathering with others, breaking bread, and immersing ourselves in the entire story, meditating on the whole Bible, if we will, from in the beginning, is needed now more than ever. Here's what unfolds my heart. 
at the Passover, before the crucifixion, Jesus sits at the traditional table with his students, transforming the traditional meal, Passover meal, into a symbol of his life broken and poured out for the world. Beautiful. In this story, in Luke's story, Jesus sits at the common table with his students, and he transforms the common meal into telling the eternal story of redemption. I love that so much, because here, here's what I want. What is this community? We're to commit to inviting one another, as well as friends, neighbors, and strangers to the common table, and then would tell the eternal story of redemption with our lives first and with our words. I believe that would change us and I believe it would change all who gather with us. If we would see the common table, the meal, as an invitation for connection, for storytelling, and for telling the story, it's there for us to do. So it begins. We are invited to think about how we tell the story, but to go where we begin the story matters so very much. Yesterday, yesterday, I heard two different things. I heard someone say, I was wakened to the bigger story. I, I, I was awakened and I began to back up and see there's a much bigger story going on. And I heard another story, and we'll talk about it in the coming weeks, and the person said, the story begins with I'm bad. And I'm like, oh, what story are you talking about? That it begins with your badness. I think we should begin in the beginning, and we can talk about that next week. But at this time, we're going to come uh, to the table. And we're going to take basic, common bread, which is a symbol, a picture of Jesus' life broken and given for us. We're going to take the cup, which is a symbol, it's a picture of Jesus' blood poured out for us. In other words, this is a symbol, a picture, a practice of Jesus' life broken and poured for the healing of the world. It's an invitation for us to meditate on that, reflect on that, whether we do so in this way or whether we do so around any table that we take the time and recognize this is an invitation to see the bigger story. And then this is an invitation for us to then do the same, to go out into the world, into our communities, into all of the ways, our workplaces, and break ourselves open and pour ourselves out that people might awaken, see, experience the love and goodness of God. So as we come to the table, uh, there will be a couple of us over here, a couple over here, and we'll just say words like, this is a picture of Jesus' body given for you. This is a picture, a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out for you. May you take this, however you do this, and remember that the story is much, much bigger and we get to be a part of it. It's so incredible. And then that we would take and reflect on that and then we will go out and live this story for others.